Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining this Heritage Foundation webinar to discuss the future of healthcare reform in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Nina Ocherenko Schaefer, and I am a Senior Research Fellow in Health Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Response to the COVID-19 pandemic has not diminished the debate over health reform. In many respects, it has elevated it as the country tries to grapple with the best way to deliver care to its citizens. Over the past few years, the Heritage Foundation has been working with national, state, and grassroots leaders to develop a framework for a patient-centered healthcare reform system. A reform proposal that would provide states with the flexibility and resources to address the unique needs of its citizens, that would remove obstacles to allow the private sector to respond to the circumstances on the ground and that would give patients and their doctors greater control over the delivery of care. This proposal, the Healthcare Choices Proposal, has gained over support of over 100 leaders across the country. Early lessons from this pandemic underscores the importance of a state-by-state -state approach. Yet there are other proposals, such as expanding Obamacare or adopting Medicare for All, that head in the opposite direction. Today, we will hear from two experts to help us better understand the implications of these proposals and discuss the way forward. But before, let, before we get started, let me share a few housekeeping items. First, all attendees are in listen-only mode. Second, we welcome and encourage your questions. They can be submitted through the questions box on your GoToWebinar dashboard. Finally, this session is being recorded. It will be emailed and posted on heritage.org slash events within 24 hours. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce our speakers. Sally Pipes is president and CEO of the Pacific Research Institute, a national think tank whose mission is to advance free market policy solutions. Sally, a former Canadian and now US citizen, has authored numerous books on healthcare, including most recently, False Premise, False Promise, The Disastrous Reality of Medicare for All. Bob Moffitt is Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Like Sally, Bob is a nationally recognized health policy expert. He has decades of public policy experience and has been at the forefront of the biggest healthcare reform debates of our times, including Clinton Care, Obamacare, and Medicare for All. With that, Let's get right into it. And I hand it over to you, Sally. Thank you, Nina. And I'm so delighted to be part of this with Bob. I've, you and Bob and I have been doing these kinds of things for too many years, and we're still fighting the, the, the battle to bring competition and choice to healthcare. 
um, I'd like to first of all explain to people what Medicare for All means. M4A, single payer, Medicare for All. It means that there would be no private coverage allowed. All private insurance companies would be out of out of out of work. Out, they would close down, and the government would provide anything that is considered and everything that is considered medically necessary. I believe that healthcare will be the number one domestic policy issue in this upcoming election. Certainly it's risen even further uh, with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, Senator Sanders um, has been aggressively promoting Medicare for all since 2016 when he was running against Hillary Clinton. He's out of the race now, as everyone knows, but he's still pushing very, very hard for it. You know, he, he says that now with the pandemic, we really need Medicare for all more, you know, even more than we did uh, before. He says healthcare is a human right, as we all know, and that's why we need it. His uh, sidekick, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, a Democratic uh, member from New York, she's actually also supporting Medicare for all, and she has been saying how we need Medicare for all un under the pandemic. So what I'm going to talk about is the false promises and the disastrous realities of single-payer systems. I grew up in Canada, as Nina mentioned, under a single-payer system. So I'm going to talk about some real examples from Canada and the UK, and I'm sure that Bob will have more as we proceed. Um, I'm going to give some, at the end, a few of the deregulation efforts that are going on right now, and I'm hoping that they will become permanent after the pandemic um, ends. Progressives, of course, people like AOC, Bernie Sanders, Pramila Jayapal in Washington, they are pushing very hard for Medicare for all. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, the recent Gallup poll shows, this was at the end of March, that 55% of the people polled support Medicare for all, which is up from 54% back in um, June of, of 2019. So, um, I think these are, are very um, interesting numbers, but a lot of people don't understand what Medicare for All really means, i.e. no private coverage. We've certainly seen in the Kaiser Family Foundation polling that when 56% of people in their poll support Medicare for All, but 160 million Americans have um, employer-sponsored coverage, and 71% of them in the polls like it, they, like they find it good, or they find it excellent. But when they're told, what do you think of Medicare for all, when you would lose your private coverage? And that support goes down to 37%. So one of our big jobs, of course, is to educate the American people on what will happen to them under a single-payer system, and the fact that they will lose all of their uh, private coverage. Um, we, Charles Blayhouse from Mercatus and the Urban Institute have costed out Senator Sanders' plans and some of the other plans, showing that if they doubled all personal and corporate income taxes, it wouldn't be enough to cover the increase in federal spending between 32 and $40 trillion over 10 years. There'd have to be new taxes, higher taxes, um, doctors' payments would be reduced by about 40%, bringing them down to Medicare rates. And of course, it wouldn't be free. Bernie Sanders is always out there saying single payer will mean that your health care will be free. And I'll talk about that uh, in, in a moment. Primary care doctors uh, in this country 
earn about 218,000. In Canada, where it's a true single payer system, they earn 146,000, and the UK about 134,000. So our primary care doctors are paid well, but they're going to be paid 40% less if we adopt a single payer system. Um, Amy Finkelstein at MIT has made it um, quite clear in her writings that while the number 32 to 40 trillion over 10 years, you know, may be close, but it could be a lot higher because when people think that something is free, they will demand a lot more of it. And this happened under Medicare when it came into being um, um, in um, 1965. And so I think we'd see the same with single payer. So Amy Finkelstein is, is right. It, the demand would be greater, supply would have to be cut back, and the cost would be very high. So I've outlined the hypothetical situation of what it would mean um, in, in the US, we would have doctor shortages, we would have ration care, we would have long waits for care, and of course, it wouldn't be free. So I'm going to talk about two countries that have these uh, systems of, of Medicare for all, one being Canada, as I say, where I'm from. Uh, the average wait in Canada to last year, 2019, from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist, 20.9 weeks, that's over five months. And back in 1993, that number was only 9.3 weeks. Canada has a population of about 38 million, fewer than in the state of California, but there are 1 million people waiting to get a, um, a, a general practitioner, a, a doctor on the list. And it's, as I mentioned, it's not free. Bernie Sanders says that the average American family pays about $11,000 a year for their health, in their healthcare premiums. Well, in Canada, the average family last year paid $13,311 in hidden taxes. Remember, last fall, uh, Senator Sanders, when he was trying to get the Democratic nomination, he had um, a heart issue, and he was in Las Vegas, and he was immediately taken to a hospital, treated, and he recovered, fortunately. But if he were in Canada, he would have had to wait between three and 11 weeks to get the kind of treatment that he did. Michael Bublé, the famous crooner from Canada, who I love his Christmas CD, when his young son, Noah, at age three, was diagnosed in Vancouver with um, liver cancer, they didn't wait around in, in Vancouver trying to figure out what kind of treatment would he get, when would he get treatment. They immediately, and they could afford it, they went to Los Angeles to the Children's Hospital of LA. They got his treatment. Four years later, he is still alive and well. And as Michael Bublé said, they had the very best care, the very best treatment, and we're so grateful. My own mother died of colon cancer, as many of you probably know, because as a senior, the waiting time to get a colonoscopy was just too long. She was denied that. Finally, six months later, when she was hemorrhaging, she went to the hospital uh, in an ambulance, two days in the ER, two days in the transit lounge at BGH waiting for a room. She got her colonoscopy, but she died two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. These are the kinds of things that would happen in this country. In the United Kingdom, under their National Health Service, that'll be 72 years old uh, this coming summer, they have virtually a single payer system. About 10% of Brits have private coverage and they're allowed to, but there are, a lot, there are pro the same problems as exist in Canada, um, exist in the UK. There, last year, about 4.4 million Brits were, lady, were waiting um, for treatment. The National Health Service has a target date for cancer treatment of 62 days. That target 
has not been reached in the UK for over five years. And when you look at the five-year cancer survival rates in the United Kingdom, uh, Britain is at the bottom of the international tables for five-year cancer survival rates for most of the common cancers from uh, esophageal, colorectal, um, um, lung cancer. So these are not good results. As Nigel Lawson, uh, Margaret Thatcher's former uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer said recently, the National Health Service is the nearest thing that we have to religion in the UK and you cannot criticize it. The Guardian newspaper said, the NHS is the world's very best healthcare system. Its only black mark is its poor record of keeping people alive. And Chris Jagger, the brother of uh, frontman Rolling Stone, Mick Jagger, when, his, when Mick Jagger was diagnosed with a heart issue, he went to New York Presbyterian in New York City and had his surgery and survived and was back on the, on the bandwagon very quickly. But his brother said, thank goodness Mick does not have to wait in line for the NHS. He had an alternative. And I don't know if you've watched the BBC News, but on the weekend, last Saturday, April 18th, during the pandemic, they had a shot of ambulances waiting in line for nine hours to get patients into an ER. The number of critical beds per 100,000 inhabitants in the UK under NHS, 6.6, whereas in this country, 34.7. And also in a survey done by docs, only eight doctors out of 1,600 surveyed said that they felt that the National Health Service was prepared for dealing with the pandemic. So if we were to adopt a Medicare for all system in this country, we would face the very same problems. My mom used to say, I hope you're not becoming an impatient American. And yes, I am an impatient American. Americans would not want long waits, ration care, doctor shortage, which the American Association of Medical Colleges has predicted, uh, 132,000 uh, doctor shortage by, by 2032. The same thing would happen here and we would be all very, very upset. So as PG Work says, if you think healthcare is expensive now, just wait until it's free. Thank you. Thanks, Sally. Really appreciate your insight. Now we'll turn to Bob. Bob, give us your thoughts on how the Obamacare expansion might impact the healthcare system. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, Sally gave us a very good uh, overview of the challenges of the of a single payer system in Canada and Great Britain. Uh, the topic here today is more government health care is not the answer. Uh, but the most important thing to remember is that uh, with the enactment of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act back in 2010, we had a giant leap forward in government control over the health care system. Now, the, the, President Obama's allies in Congress point out that their, their biggest achievement was a dramatic increase in the number of people with health coverage uh, to the point now that almost roughly nine out of 10 uh, Americans uh, have health insurance coverage. That's all true. It's also true that uh, access to medical care among low-income persons, particularly in primary care and mental health services, has been improved. No question about that. But that big jump in coverage overwhelmingly between 80 and more than 90% of that new coverage was attributable 
not to an increase in the ro a robust increase in competition and choice in the private health insurance markets, which we were expected, which were which the president told us we would get. Instead, it was an expansion of Medicaid, Medicaid and 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 the CHIP program, but primarily Medicaid. Here's what's interesting about all of this: over the past ten years. Um, we have seen some very dramatic changes, both the individual and the small group market. Back in 2018, uh, back in, uh, pardon me, back, back in 2010, when the Congressional Budget Office first analyzed the impact of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, they were predicting under the terms and conditions of the law that there would be a dramatic increase in, in the number of people with private health insurance uh, through the exchanges. And in fact, uh, uh, just give it, just move back a couple of years ago, 2018, the Congressional Budget Office said that by 2018, there would be 24 million Americans uh, enrolled in the ACA's private market, the so-called health insurance exchanges. The actual number was 10.6 million in 2018, less than half. This year, it appears to be about 8.3 million, uh, though there's a slight uptick in enrollment uh, under the Trump administration. In any case, uh, the total number of persons uh, who were enrolled in the individual health insurance markets started to decline after 2015, after two years into the law. Uh, and um, the biggest decline were those who were not getting any of the taxpayer subsidies, mostly middle-class people. And uh, over that period, roughly 2013 to 2017, about 4.1 million persons uh, were no longer in the individual health insurance market. Now, why is that the case? How did that happen? Well, it is the major failure of the Affordable Care Act on the ground in the exchanges. It is a failure to control costs. The failure to control costs has been pretty dramatic. The ACA dramatically increased health insurance premiums and cost sharing in the individual market. Um, in 2013, before the law was enacted, uh, the average monthly premium paid in the individual market was about $244 per month. In 2018, the national average premium in the individual market had jumped to $550 per month for an individual. In other words, 125% increase in the cost of health insurance in the first five years of the ACA. That was not what Americans were promised. Americans weren't promised exactly the opposite. Think back to President Obama saying, that not only if you not only did the, the whole business about liking your plan and keeping your plan, forget that. One of the key elements of this was that this law was going to control costs, not only bending the cost curve downward for the country, but also reducing individual and family costs. And in fact, uh, the president on 17 different occasions said that American families would be saving about uh, $2,500 a year. I know if you think about it, you'll remember all of that. At the same time, the average deductibles uh, for family coverage simply skyrocketed. Um, it was really quite amazing. 
if you actually look at the figures, uh, the individual and family out-of-pocket cost in, in 2018 uh, for an individual is about $4,000 on an annual basis. And for a family, it was about $8,000 and change. In other words, basically, individuals and families, middle-class people who were not eligible to get the subsidies were basically paying the equivalent of a second mortgage uh, for their health insurance coverage. And that has been going on all over the country. Many of you know people who've actually been priced out of health insurance or lost their health insurance or are paying very, very extremely high prices for the health insurance. With the increase in the cost, there was another big downside. And that is at the state level, you had a complete collapse in many cases of anything that would resemble a competitive health insurance market. Back in 2013, before the law actually went fully into effect, there were 395 health insurers offering individual health insurance coverage all over the country. By 2019, uh, there were only about 202 uh, insurers offering that coverage. Uh, at the same time, uh, about 77% of all US counties had only one or two health insurance plans operating in their area. 42% uh, of all Americans in those individual markets had access to only one or two health insurers. So the law actually reduced private health insurance coverage in the individual market while enrolling millions in Medicaid, which is a welfare program with a relatively poor performance of record historically. And uh, the insurance and the insurance enrollments continued to decline, uh, particularly among people who were, as I said, people who were not subsidized. Uh, the result has been that the Affordable Care Act brought about basically a massive expansion of Medicaid. It is the largest pr program in the nation in terms of the number of en enrollees. And that has actually been a, a not an increase uh, in quality. It's not an increase in options for people. Many people who are on Medicaid, they have a Medicaid card. Yes, they're covered but they have a hard time getting a doctor who will take care of them. They do not have the same kind of success in uh, getting access to highly specialized medical procedures. Then, by the way, the evidence is overwhelming too. The professional literature is clear. The medical outcomes of people who are on Medicaid compared to people who are in private health insurance, even though in many cases, the, um, the, in, the, the income levels are, are, are not so far apart. The disparity is amazing. If, you're, if you want good care, if you want good coverage, you want superior access uh, to doctors and hospitals, uh, you want to be in private health insurance. Wow. By the way, one point about doctors and hospitals, another effect of the, of, of the Affordable Care Act uh, is that the health insurance plans offered to people in the health insurance exchanges around the country have very narrow networks. Many of the finest doctors and hospitals and clinics uh, and agents and, and medical facilities are not in these, uh, in these health insurance plans. They don't have a contract with them. Uh, they're called these narrow networks. Well, about 72% of all of these plans have narrow networks. So if you look at the impact on, on quality, access to high quality care, if you look at the impact on the markets, choice, competition, and if you look at the impact on cost, the Affordable Care Act has been a dramatic failure. 
We have to go beyond that. Now, the Affordable Care Act's biggest regulatory impact has been on the individual and the small group markets. Small group markets being the markets that uh, provide coverage uh, for small employers. And small employers are struggling today just like they were struggling years ago, but their situation in many cases has gotten worse. So we have to go back to the drawing board and we have to do a better job. That doesn't mean that we have to cut spending in healthcare. We could keep spending in healthcare, but we could direct that spending more effectively to the states to allow individuals and families ultimately to exercise more control over their healthcare. And we should reduce the regulation that has actually contributed dramatically uh, to uh, the increase in health insurance costs. The big thing, the big, big change that happened with the Affordable Care Act was a vast transfer of regulatory authority from the states to the federal government. And that has not resulted in reduced cost, it actually increased cost and increased cost dramatically. And we also have to think about one other thing, and that is this. Do we really want a system in the United States where people, regardless of their income, regardless of their income, can't get the kind of coverage they really want? And I'm talking particularly about low-income people. Um, one of the difficulties with Medicaid, as I said earlier, is that Medicaid doesn't give you access to the best doctors, and sometimes you have a hard time finding a doctor if you're in Medicaid. But not only that, if you could get options, if you could get health insurance coverage with superior access, a superior plan, a private health insurance plan, an employer plan, and the government could actually help you do that. So instead of sending all, spending all this money on the Affordable Care Act plans or Medicaid, you would be able to enroll in a private health insurance plan of your choice. That would be a lot better than we have today. We have to stimulate competition. We have to expand choice for individuals and families. We've got to give people more control over their dollars and their decisions. Until we do that, we're not going to have real health care, not real health care reform. Anyway, that's uh, my story. I'm sticking with it. I'll be very happy to answer your questions. All right. Thanks, Bob. And Sally, I hope you'll join us back on the video now as we um, start trying to field some questions here. Uh, thanks, everyone, for your patience on this. Um, thanks, Bob. Thanks, Sally. You both covered a, a lot of um, a lot of landscape right there. Um, I want to remind um, our participants that you can submit your questions to our to our speakers through the GoToWebinar dashboard. Um, and we, I'll begin to kind of sort through these questions and um, and ask and, and summarize what we've had coming in. Um, one question, um, I'll start with uh, I'll start with um, Sally, but perhaps um, Bob, you will also be able to chime in after. Um, what will uh, will hospitals and nurses get paid less under Medicare for All proposal? Well, absolutely. As I mentioned right now, doctors, primary care docs in the U.S. are earning about 216000 a year versus um, about 146000 in the U.K. and 138000 in, in Canada. So if, you know, under Medicare for All, Sanders has said, he has even said that doctors would have to be paid at about Medicare rates, which are 40% below what they're paid today. And as you know, a lot of, um, I think that a lot of the best and brightest kids won't go into medicine because they would be government servants. And as and Bob Moffat has pointed out, 
you know, all of the problems under, under Obamacare. And so we would see, I think, really the shortage of doctors, the number of best specialists um, that practice medicine and, and have the best outcomes, they will retire early from medicine as well. So this will be a disaster in particular for attracting the best and brightest kids who traditionally apply to medical school. And Bob, maybe you... Yeah, I was going to say that's exactly right. Uh, right now, we have a shortage of about 120,000 doctors, uh, roughly. And uh, that shortage is biggest in the area of primary care. Now, primary care physicians are not as well paid, as you know, as highly, highly paid specialists like orthopedics or cardiologists and so on. But the, the key selling point of, uh, the, of, the, uh, of the single payer proposal, the Medicare for All proposal, is vast savings, reducing the total amount of money that is goes into healthcare in the United States to bring it more in line with Canada or Great Britain and other countries. But the key way to do that is the reduction in the reimbursement for doctors, hospitals, and clinics and home health agencies across the board. Now, our friends at Mercatus and our friends at the Urban Institute basically came up with the same basic uh, econometric studies. We are looking at vast or major reductions in reimbursement for physicians who are right now at and beyond beyond this virus, beyond coronavirus. Right now, they are struggling to try to keep up uh, with the the caseloads they have. Uh, th this is a recipe for real a real crisis, no question. Nina, I just was going to add one quick point. You know, in the UK, because they have such a shortage of docs in the NHS, you know, they made financial offers to bring doctors from other countries back into the US, back into the UK, and very few responded. That, but the, they don't want to go and work under these conditions where you're you're paid, you get low pay, you work long hours, and you can't, you know, in many cases, get the best treatment for your patients. And I just want to underscore something that Bob mentioned in his presentation, that this is not just a challenge within a Medicare for all scenario, that we're already facing some of these problems in through the Affordable Care Act, through Obamacare. As Bob mentioned, the very narrow networks, that means you have fewer doctors who are participating, fewer providers who are willing to participate in the government public options. So, um, that would only be accentuated under a Medicare for all scenario, but certainly we're already seeing some of those um, those problems and the challenges um, with, with workforce and access to care, even under um, Obamacare. So let's move on to another question. Um, wouldn't the proposed system from um, Senator Sanders and others be even worse than the existing systems in the UK and Canada? Uh, yes, I believe absolutely, because Senator Sanders has a more aggressive single-payer system than that even of Canada, and I talked about the weights and the ration care. Senator Sanders' plan would add um, free dental, free vision, uh, free long-term care, and pharmaceuticals would be very, very cheap. So his program would be even more expensive and result um, in longer waits and more ration care. And remember, uh, several years ago, there was a uh, uh, the Simpsons had a show on the the big British book of dentistry, because dentistry is covered in the UK, where whereas it isn't in Canada. And you know, very few people, unless you can afford private dentistry, you know, they're the teeth of many in Britain are something that American people would have no concept of what 
British dentistry would do to your teeth. Your teeth are removed before you don't you don't get implants and all of the things that people here expect to have. Uh, the fact is that uh, in Great Britain, uh, you have the equivalent of a public education system. If you, you, everybody is covered by the National Health Service. But if you want to buy private health insurance, and a number of people do, it's about 12%, between 11 and 12% of the British population are enrolled in private health insurance. There's one other very, very big uh, difference between Medicare for all and um, the British system. The British system is far more liberal. If you have a doctor who wants to practice in private, in private practice, open up a private practice, and that doctor is a, a participant in the British National Health Service, the British government has no restrictions whatsoever on you being able to go to a private position, and there are no restrictions on private positions uh, being able to, uh, to take care of people outside of the government program. Under Medicare for All, the restrictions on private physicians are far more draconian uh, than you have in either Britain, well, frankly, they're much more so than Britain, I can say for sure. Um, so, you know, uh, this is about the most authoritarian single-payer system being proposed by Senator Sanders of any of the single-payer systems in the rest of the world, including, including Canada. I mean, there really are only three true single-payer systems in the world, Canada, Cuba, and North Korea. Do we want to be, you know, part of that group? And I think, you know, absolutely not. And, you know, certainly when Canada was um, finishing up the full takeover of the system under the Canada Health Act in 84, um, they, they went to the Brits and said, you know, what was the labor people, what was the biggest mistake you ever made? And it was allowing private health care to run parallel to the National Health Service. So Canada disallowed that and all doctors work for the provincial uh, government in the pro province in which they work. So I'm going to try to group some of these questions together since they're, they're coming in and there are some that overlap. Um, but kind of building on the question of kind of physicians and access, are there ideas, what are some solutions to help with the physician shortage issues that we're facing in our country? Bob, why don't we start with you this time? You know, one thing I would do is recognize the fact that um, a lot of what uh, primary care physicians do and a lot, a lot of what physicians do is actually routine medical care. And there's absolutely no reason why, and this is primarily a state issue, but there's no reason why, for example, that uh, a registered nurse could not carry out many of the functions of routine examination and, um, and treatment for people with things like uh, strep throat, uh, earaches, um, uh, a number of other you know, routine medical services. And in many states, they're really debating that right now. And they, they're talking about expanding the scope of, of practice uh, for these medical practitioners to practice, practice up to the limits of their license. In other words, in, in accordance with their, um, with their capacities. My own view is there's no reason whatsoever uh, to have any kind of a restriction uh, on these people. I'm talking about the, the physician assistants, the re registered nurses, and so on. Uh, except for some clear issue of public safety. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, we have debates that are going on uh, in, in states about whether pharmacists uh, should be able to provide vaccinations. Well, in many states, pharmacists do provide vaccinations for the seasonal flu. But why isn't it 
true and all. I could I can't hear Bob. Sally, Sally, what about you? Do you see any um any ideas on on things to increase access to physicians here in the US? Well, exactly. I mean, we've been talking about these issues for so many years, fighting for, you know, competition in healthcare. But with the coronavirus, some of the things that Bob just mentioned, we've been we've been pushing and now they're happening. And my hope is that after the pandemic is over, that they continue. Another one is telehealth. I mean, if you live in a rural community or you're an older person and you don't have a car, telehealth, working with your doctor and your doctor working with top specialists is a way to reduce cost and to give access to these people with, with the very best best of care. A friend of mine who had uh, breast cancer lived in a remote part of Connecticut. You know, working with um, the uh, Sloan Kettering, her doctor was able to get her the very best treatments that were administered in her home community. Another thing that I think is important is licensure. Some of the states now under the pandemic are saying, well, you know, Sally Pipes, you're a licensed uh, doctor in California, but you know, they need help in New York. I wouldn't be able to go and practice there. So we need to open up the licensure laws so that people can move around and go to where, you know, they can provide their, their best uh, care to patients. And the third thing is that we're seeing a bit of this now is, you know, students go to undergrad for four years, four years of medicine, and then four to six years of a specialty. Well, you know, we're seeing Harvard and NYU, the Grossman School, they told their 2020 grads they could graduate early and start practicing medicine because of the, the shortage and the demand. But we've seen it, like Duke Medical School, um, Ohio State, and now uh, um, North Carolina Chapel Hill, these medical schools are offering a three-year medical degree instead of four years. Medicine, medic, uh, medical school is expensive. So I think that a lot of the, the time could be shortened so that when we have the shortage um, that is out there, we could get more doctors onto the front lines in three years. I'm not sure if we have Bob now on, um, on uh, microphone only or if he's going to be able to join us via video, but I want to build on that a little bit. We had a question about direct primary care and what, what's the role uh, that direct primary care plays and are there changes um, that or how can we encourage the um, expansion of direct primary care? There's Bob. So Bob, we raised the question about direct primary care and what, what a role um, can direct primary care play? Um, are there, um, what efforts can we do to kind of expand the, the scope of, of those trying to provide primary care um, services? Okay, Sally, do you have any thoughts on direct primary care? I'm a huge fan of direct primary care, and I'm glad to see that you know some of the the docs in uh, docs for patient care have really been pushing this, and we're making headway in that. So direct primary care, where you Nina would pay your uh, primary care doctor a set amount per 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 month or per year, and you would know what the fee structure is for getting an MRI or a CT scan or whatever. In many cases, as you know. If you call up a hospital and say, I need to book my annual mammogram, how much is it going to cost? The people on the phone have no idea. But direct primary care is a great way to empower doctors and patients and, and give people you know, price transparency, which is something that we've all been pushing for. 
Right, and, and one of the, the person that asked the question also wanted to know what the status of legislation was. And I think one of the things um, many conservatives are looking for is when Congress comes back in May, what are those things that we could make? Um, not only are the, the policies that Sally and Bob talked about making those temporary regulatory changes permanent, but looking at things like allowing um, um, families to use their health savings accounts to pay their direct primary care um, fees and services would be a really important um, element that, that would be great for Congress to take up in the new, in when they come back in May. So hopefully we'll see some, some traction on that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's move on. Another question um, regarding um, the single payer system. There are a lot of talk about um, single payer systems gaining, um, helping to reduce administrative costs and therefore gaining lots of savings to the system. What, um, what is the reality there? And a second part to that question is, how do conservatives think about how um, is the best way to, to reduce or bend the cost curve down in the healthcare system if it's not through a single payer system? Well, um, you know, under um, under single payer and under um, Charles Blayhouse's numbers and Urban Institute, those numbers of 32 to 40 trillion over 10 year increase in federal spending took account of a few of the uh, maybe perhaps administrative cost uh, reductions. But I don't see it. Has anyone ever seen a government program that can run more efficiently and cheaper than the private private sector? If all if one million people who work in insurance lose lose their job under Medicare for all, the government is going to have to hire many, many people to process all of these claims and also to organize for the payment of, of physicians. And my cousin, who's an ophthalmologist in Vancouver, says, I find it amazing that, that Americans think single payer, you know, will be a great way and it'll be more efficient. He said, dealing with the government, I have to deal with the provincial government in BC to get paid and it's not efficient and it takes a long time. And in many cases, when my global budget for doing eye surgery is up in November, I can't get paid for any more surgery. So I think we really have to think about, is the government more efficient? Will there be uh, cost savings? Because I think it'll be a huge expansion in the, in, this, in, this, in the civil service and probably not with some of the, the best people that have worked in the private uh, insurance industry. I, uh, I'm, can you hear me now? Yes. Be sure. Oh, good. Let me just chime in briefly on this. Um, first of all, nobody knows what the administrative cost of the future government program will be, all right? We know we have an experience with Medicare, uh, but the experience with Medicare is limited to the senior population, and it's also a population where the total costs are much higher in Medicare. In other words, the denominator is much bigger because it's, it's an older and sicker population with a high degree of, um, a high degree of healthcare utilization. On a per capita basis, if you apply that across the board, uh, that means that uh, you're going to find uh, in the private sector, if you do this, the private sector's per capita costs are actually going to be smaller. The other thing to remember about this is that most um, comparisons between the public sector and the private sector, between Medicare and private insurance, are often apples to apples comparisons. They're radically different, they're radically different in many ways. Uh, the, uh, the private sector does things that Medicare does not do. One thing that the private sector does quite well is to police false claims. Uh, and and uh, you cannot, I can't stress this enough. Nobody 
nobody, when they're talking about Medicare and administrative costs of Medicare being so low, 3% or 2%, they never really factor in to not factor into that administrative calculation, the failure of Medicare's administration, the failure to control fraud and abuse and waste in the system. And we hear every year, we get reports out of the Government Accountability Office or, or the, the Inspector General of HHS, big numbers, 50, $60 billion a year lost to waste, fraud, and abuse. Those are real administrative costs, but they don't show up on the books. It's the way they count them. And Sally's brought up a very important point, which can't be neglected. I don't want to take too much time here, but I, I got to stress this. One of the big uh, fallacies of looking at administrative costs merely in terms of administrative costs compared to the benefit payout is the fact that a lot of administrative costs in Medicare are costs that are trans, trans, uh, is tr trans, uh, transitioned over to doctors, hospitals, home health right. agencies, nursing homes in complying with a very, very complex regulatory system, in particular the payment system. And those are real costs. They never show up on the books, but they're real costs. Years ago, um, there was a study done uh, by the Lewin Group. Uh, for, um, I believe it was the Lewin Group, for the American Hospital Association. And they pointed out that for every hour of patient care delivered to a Medicare patient in an American hospital, hospital officials spend about a half hour complying with Medicare paperwork. That's a huge administrative cost, and it never shows up uh, on, the, uh, on, the Medicare, uh, on, on the Medicare books. And also, a lot of uh, the, the, um, the payments for Medicare procedures are actually fulfilled by Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and private carriers. And the other point sure. is that we have a single-payer system in this country that nobody seems to be talking about, and it's the Veterans Administration. And, and we hear all the time in the media, as Bob knows, that so many of our vets cannot get um, care, timely care, get access to the very best uh, drugs, the best procedures. And so people really need to think about, is this the kind of system that they want? As Ma uh, just retired in Canada, Madam Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin said in a ruling back in 2005, access to a care card is not access to care. And so, you know, we really need to think about what this will mean for us as patients and as citizens. Great. Well, we're going to, um, another kind of general question area that I thought maybe, um, Bob, we'll start with you, is a question about early response to the COVID-19. And are there any correlations between um, COVID-19 response, death rates, delay in care and access, um, and single-payer healthcare systems or very heavy government-run healthcare systems? I think the data is still coming in on this, but uh, the president pointed out, at least on a per capita basis, the number of cases per million, right? That actually, uh, our death rate is actually below that of many other countries. We're going to see more of this as this goes on. Uh, I don't think it, I think it's a little early yet to make a determination about how uh, the single payer systems, Canada and Britain, uh, have uh, performed compared to the United States. But I can tell you, that when this first broke out, 
uh, both in Great Britain and in Canada, public health authorities were saying that they were not ready for anything of this magnitude. In fact, the University of uh, Toronto uh, came out with a study that said that the system would actually be overwhelmed. Now, that's, again, that's a, a few weeks ago. Uh, I'm not sure what, what the latest story is in, in Britain, uh, but I do know that even before uh, they had uh, the COVID-19, they were having a very serious problem with uh, overcrowded and understaffed hospitals. I can't imagine uh, that they're doing much better with the uh, coming of the virus. And I, I would just like to add, Bob, that's absolutely true. And, you know, following all this, and particularly because I'm Canadian, you know, the, the healthcare officials in Canada and the UK are so worried about overcrowding because they don't have the spare capacity. They're already, but if you think back to 2002, 2003, when the SARS um, virus hit, in Canada, we had 375 SARS cases, most of them in Ontario, and 44 people died. Some people were in a, an emer in a waiting room in an ER for 16 hours trying to get a bed and a ward and passing on the SARS uh, virus to other patients in the ER. In the United States, we had 27 cases. No one died from SARS. And so Canada you know, doesn't have the money to do all of the work, plus the work of the private sector with vaccines, antivirals, antibodies, tests. All of that work is being done here in America where we have we don't have at this point a single payer system. Those are great all new, all new drugs are made here and made by That's American companies. Exactly. 90%. That's <laughs> not a debate. Exactly. And certainly the US is, is leading on that front. And um a couple other of anecdotes on this, which is both in um the in Canada, they have also taken aggressive de emergency deregulation in order to try to free up capacity and supply to services. And in the UK, there have been stories about how the they are so dependent because the UK system is not a traditional single payer, uh, but does have a private sector component. They have actually been very dependent on that private sector to component to help during the crisis. It will be interesting, I think, um, similar in the U.S., that as things perhaps return to a more normal setting, how much um, other countries will learn from this experience and follow what we hope the U.S. will will follow, which is a more deregulatory um, agenda for their healthcare reform systems. Do you all have any comments on on what you think the future of healthcare reform looks like post COVID nineteen? Maybe not only here in the U.S. but elsewhere. I'll start. I think uh, the initial uh, failure of the United States was the failure to move quickly on the issue of testing. Um, and the most remarkable thing happened. Uh, the CDC had created its own test, but it was flawed. They sent it out and they had to pull it back. It was a CDC test, right? Uh, at the same time, the CDC you know, would not allow the tests, when they did develop the test, would not allow the tests to be used by anything other than public health agencies. So you had the absurd situation of Johns Hopkins University, one of the top medical centers in the entire universe, being forbidden to use the CDC test for the state of Maryland. That became an issue early on. I thank God it has. And, you know, at the same time, you know, we had the, uh, the FDA was not allowing 
other co companies, private sector companies to actually get into the field quickly enough. That changed on February 29th, where the FDA basically lifted the rules and Roach and Company, which is, a, is based in Switzerland, and a number of other companies started developing these diagnostic tests. Look, when this is over, there is going to be a lot of uh, self-examination, after action uh, examination of what happened, what went right, and what went wrong. One thing that is indisputable is the performance of the FDA and the CDC at the very beginning of this crisis was a disaster. And it cannot happen again. And a blue ribbon commission, whether it's uh, you know the president or, or, or the heritage, I don't know, the private sector, is going to have to look into that and basically make recommendations going forward for the future. We Very well said. It happen again. This was, this was an embarrassment to the United States to have South Korea basically off and running even before we were able to get uh, our, our, our shoes and socks on. Well said, Bob. And even when you have a Blue Ribbon Commission, we come up with solutions. They have to be implemented. I mean, in Canada, you know, after SARS, they had a special Ontario commission into SARS. They had all these recommendations. But because the government can only spend 11% of gross domestic product on healthcare, they don't have enough funding. So nothing was done. So they're in a similar situation now under, under the pandemic. So we've got to, you know, get the private sector out there and getting their things approved so that people can have access to the best. And if you don't do anything, there will be another pandemic, whether it's COVID-2 in the fall or whatever it is, but there we will have another one. Well, um, it's kind of a wrap up on that too. I think one of the kind of gets us back to what many of us have been working on, the healthcare choices proposal, which really, you know, was pulled together before the pandemic hit, but boy, is it even more important now to think about what is the reform path moving forward. And I think many of the same policies um, will will be even even stronger moving forward, which is giving having a state by state approach is the most effective way of dealing what is hitting on the ground. Two, removing the regulatory obstacles so that the private sector can actually address and adapt to what is demanded of them in um, on the ground as well. And then finally, really allowing doctors and patients to be to have a say in how the care is delivered and what's best for them. I think those are really critical lessons that have come from the initial stages um, of this of this pandemic. And hopefully, Congress and the administration will continue to work on longer-term um, healthcare reform, not just um, focus once we get past the emergency here. Um, well, we're almost up on our time, so I want to thank our speakers for sharing your insights and your time with us. Um, I thought it was very, covered a lot of ground here today. Um, for those of you who are interested in more on this, uh, you can get additional information on this topic and others at heritage.org healthcare resource kit and also, of course, at pacificresearch.org. And as a reminder, this session will be posted on heritage.org slash events. Um, and with that, I would just want to say that this will conclude our webinar, and we appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Bob, and thanks, Sally. Thank you. Thank you, Nina and Bob. Yes, excellent.